0: From Acres, USA, you're listening to Tractor Time, a conversational podcast where we'll explore sustainable farming, regenerative practices, and the latest innovations in eco-agriculture with some of your favorite farmers and ranchers. I'm your host, Sarah Wenzel-Fisher, the Executive Director of the Kavira Coalition. Welcome to Tractor Time. Today we're talking with Paul Neubauer. Paul is the farm foreman at Velika's Farms and manages the day-to-day operations of his farm, as well as managing his own cattle enterprise, PN Custom Grazing. He is committed to working at the intersection of crops, livestock, land health, and people. Paul is certain we are not doing enough as a society to address climate change, the deeply unhealthy food system, massive and unsustainable inequality of the gender, racial, religious, and economic kinds, and the lack of livestock on U.S. cropland. His work as a foreman and mentor at Velika's Farms, as well as his time as an apprentice in the Kavira New Agrarian Program, have been in an effort to live closely to the land and pursue remedies to the aforementioned societal ills. Paul's relationship with his agricultural mentors have been the essential catalyst for his joy in the work of growing food and his small successes thus far. Inspired by his own experience as a mentee, Paul is dedicated to providing education, mentorship, and his friendship to other beginning farmers and ranchers. Paul's work with land, animals, food, and people also extends past the farm gate. He's the president of the Cottonwood Local of the Montana Farmers Union, as well as having represented Montana Farmers Union at the National Farmers Union Convention, where he works to help create and shape policies that will improve the health of land and the livelihoods of those who manage it. Finally, Paul is the president of the Montana Premium Processing Cooperative. I'm really excited to have you on this afternoon. How are you doing? I'm
1: doing fine, thank you. How are you today, Sarah?
0: I am good. I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself, your background, where you are today, and how you got there.
1: My name is Paul Neubauer. I work as the assistant farm manager at Velikas Farms, which is a large-scale organic diversified crop operation, and we farm and ranch in north-central Montana, more specifically in Northern Hill County, which is uh, on the border with uh, Canada, where Alberta and Saskatchewan meet, just south of the uh, the Cypress Hills area. Um, And in addition to being the assistant farm manager, I also have my own business, an enterprise that's integrated with the farming operation called PN Custom Grazing, and that. Custom grazing, if anybody's not familiar, means that uh, I contract with people who own cattle primarily, but other animal classes are open. We're not exclusive. And they send their animals to me during the growing season. I manage them and graze cover crops that we raise on the farm uh, with those animals. And then at the end of the growing season, I send them home, which, if you ask me, is the best way to take care of animals on the same schedule as farming. So you can do stuff in the winter. And would you like to know how I came to be all of those things I just said?
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic.
1: Okay, great. Uh, So I uh, was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. Um, I did not grow up on a farm or at all connected to agriculture. And I didn't have any exposure to any type of agricultural production until after I graduated high school. Um, I went to Warren Wilson College in Swannanoa, North Carolina, which is a work college. And there was a farm there on the campus, and I worked on the farm. That was my first um, in-depth exposure to farming. And we took care of all types of different livestock, and we also raised crops like corn and barley and alfalfa and I almost didn't graduate um, college because I had a lot more fun farming. If I had had farming during high school, I probably would similarly have almost not graduated high school. And then after I graduated from uh, college with a bachelor's in history and political science, I uh, decided to never use that professionally and went into the Kavira Coalition New Agrarian Program Apprenticeship. Uh, So I was an apprentice to George Witten and Julie Sullivan, my mentors to this day, who uh, ranch in the San Luis Valley in Southern Colorado. And I was there as an apprentice for two years and then some portion of another year as an employee. Um, Through that connection, I met Doug and Anna Doug Crabtree and Anna Jones Crabtree, who own Valicus Farms and are my mentors and my co-managers of this operation. We're on now, uh, and that's how I moved to Montana. So this is my fifth year in Montana, all of them here north of Haver, uh, working with Doug and Anna. Um, let me think. The reason that I decided to change from what was a certified organic uh, grass-fed and grass-finished operation at the San Juan Ranch with uh, Julie and George to a certified organic crop operation was specifically my interests in integrating livestock grazing with annual crop production. Um, and the two types of operations between the San Juan Ranch and Valicus in a lot of ways, are practically um, antithetical to each other. You know, I think George George especially uh, is uh, seeking always to f- find avenues to eliminate combustion engines from his uh, production system. And here at Velikus, we just love tractors and trucks, as many as we can get our hands on. Uh, but philosophically, um, the two places are very aligned so that, uh, the liminal space between those two theories of efficient and ecologically healthy food production is a really interesting place to operate and to have mentors on the opposite side of. And then specifically, there is a really great opportunity here to introduce um, cattle grazing into our crop operations in a way that can be economically and resource efficient for grazing and also bring added value to the cropping system. So that's what I do.
0: That's great. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about the story of bringing cattle to Velika's. And what, uh, it, well, have you, is it just cattle or have you had other animals there grazing, um, sort of what was the point of initiation, uh, bringing livestock onto the operation? Um, and yeah, just, just tell us a little bit of the story of, of how you've gotten to the point where you are now and also tell us how things are going.
1: (laughs) Sure. I'll start with what we're doing right now. So like this, um, This season, 2023, we have three distinct herds of animals, all cattle grazing on the farm, primarily um, yearlings, mixed steers, and spayed heifers, and then some breeding heifers with bulls. Uh, And then we have a small herd of Scottish Highlander cows, which is at this point more a hobby than a professional pursuit because we like the way that they look. Fuzzy and cute, uh, but we have a total of. Let me do some quick mental math. About a hundred and nah, about two hundred head among all those groups, um, totaling about one hundred and thirty to one hundred and forty animal units, um, and they're grazing right now as we speak. Uh, so the first. Year that I was here as I um, was working, my title then was Foreman, Farm Operations Foreman. We did not, I didn't start with grazing animals. Um, I had very little knowledge about large scale um, annual crop production, uh, especially organic crop production, and especially what we do here, which is dry land. So we farm about 12,000 acres of ground, so really big equipment. Uh, big landscapes and very dry. We have very little water resource, no irrigation, all rain fed systems and a new environment for me this far north in the inner mountain west. So my first year was uh, definitely spent trying to learn how to do the farming and then also making observations about where I thought with my experience and skills that we could fit animals in to the farming system. Uh, And then the second year that I was here, we started with grazing a herd of 30 pair cow calf pairs using temporary electric fence, which is still the primary means that I use to fence and manage animals don't really have hardly any permanent fence on the farm. And the first place that we put animals and still what sort of drives the grazing system is that we raise cover crops in the organic system. That can mean a lot of things for us. Cover crops, uh, the primary purpose is we use legume-based mixes to uh, sequester nitrogen in the soil in order to feed the nutrient needs of following cash crops, primarily wheat, and different varieties of spring grains Um, and those without grazing uh, what we do is seed a legume-based cover crop in the spring uh, which for us is April and May a very short season and by about the middle of June to the end of June that crop is ready to terminate. So without raising, we terminate those with tillage. Uh, and we try to do that with um, tillage tools that leave the soil covered with residue. But, you know, it's pretty obvious to me looking at that, that all of those plants that we're growing and spending the money on the seed and the equipment and the fuel to put in the ground um, could just as easily be eaten by an animal. Uh, and generate some income, and then the termination part where we kill the plant in order to sequester the nitrogen, stop it from making seed, and stop it from using soil moisture are really critical parts of the agronomy in this area. So the trick has been learning how to meet the agronomic needs of the crop operation um, while providing a productive grazing environment for cattle, Um, that is to this point, all that we've done in terms of livestock, that's where my experience is. It's in cattle grazing. I think that there is, I think this entire environment and specifically the feeds that we grow and more particularly the weeds that we grow make our farm a lot better suited to sheep. Um, and I have, excuse me, a lot of interest in integrating sheep grazing into our farming operation, but that's uh, a project that I haven't made enough progress on to really be a reasonable or trustworthy authority. Um, Everything I think about sheep is speculation.
0: So you started with 30 cow-calf pairs, and was that first year successful in terms of Uh, getting crop termination when you needed it, as well as whatever your targeted gains were for those animals? And sort of what did you learn from that first year that helped you then sort of scale or improve in subsequent years?
1: That's a good question. Um, A lot of stuff. So I'll start first with the theory that I developed for how we would achieve termination and have a good uh, grazing, um, product for animals. So it's very dry here. We have really short season crops. And when you're raising annuals, their purpose is to become seed as quickly as possible. Right. And so, uh, we do not want the cover crops to go to seed. They basically become an undesirable or a weed in the following season, especially if they're hard seeded crops and they compete with the cash crop. So what we decided to do, this is kind of a combination of some of the tools that we already have here on the farm for harvest management, and then some skills and practices that I learned on San Juan Ranch. We swath graze everything. So we have, let's say, for instance, in the first year that we grazed those 30-pair We set aside about 120, I think 160 acres of ground for grazing, Uh, but there was no way that we could graze all of that sufficiently with 30 pair to terminate the crop um, before it had all basically gone to seed or dried out in the middle of the summer so about june 15th of that year i swathed all of it we have a 30 foot at that time we had a 30 foot swather which is just a, a cutting tool and lays the crop in a row which we refer to as a swath and then i just let those swaths sit out didn't bale them or rake them or touch them in any way What happens is that those annual crops, especially if the moisture in the soil is pretty limited, which we can generally count on in the summer, um, they die essentially when you cut them, you know, yay far from the ground. In this instance, it was forage peas and uh, forage barley that we raised. Um, And then that swath you pile up that feed – in the field in a row and everything that's on the surface is going to oxidize and basically lose nutrient value but everything within the swath that doesn't isn't exposed to sunlight and air basically turns into hay as if it were inside of a bale and theoretically maintains the same nutritional quality that you would have in well-made hay we do get some rain in the summer it's generally very small amounts or it's if it's a lot it comes in very fast and then quickly gets dry and breezy again so i don't i did not expect and i have not experienced a lot of waste of the feed from being left out on the ground the other thing is that and this is true about every decision-making point i have for grazing on our farm ground is that whatever is beneficial agronomically beneficial to the cropping system is uh that's sort of the first priority in any decision making because the cropping system drives the economics of the farm the grazing is an add-on to what we do in terms of cropping so i don't want to sacrifice what is best for our cropping system in order to accommodate animals uh so what in a you know, a pure ranch setting, like if you were making hay and 20 to 30% of it was not eaten by the animals and just ended up on the ground, you would probably consider that waste and a pretty serious loss of investment. In the farming system, that's just residue in, the so- in or on the soil that will be reintegrated through our, uh, you know, cultural practices and be part of the soil structure and nutrient cycle into the future. So don't worry about that waste so much economically. Um, but what I found was that, uh, one, I needed a lot more animals than 30 to have both an economically efficient and a, uh, efficient grazing system. Um, and also I learned that it works really, really good. And I like swath grazing, (laughs) um, And we did about this, I get a little confused because some people like to talk in terms of tons per acre in production, but my training is in holistic management. And so I tend to think in animal days per acre. And then when somebody wants to know a weight production per acre, I always have to do math, which is not my strong suit, as you might've guessed by my humanities degree anywhere, uh, from a half a ton to the acre of production on dry land, dry land ground to like three quarters of a ton is what we've done on cover crops. Um, and so that was a number I didn't know before I started, I had no idea what the forage production value of our cover crop system was. Um, And I raised way more feed than I could use with 30 animals in the few months that I can. So I learned, one, that swath grazing is definitely an approach that works for us. Um, Two, that it is a lot better to have a larger herd of animals that I move more frequently than it is to have a small herd of animals. And I'm trying to think what else I learned. Oh, and then I learned a lot about what type of fencing products and materials work for us or for me specifically here in the landscape that we're on and the ground that we have and the environment that we have. Are you looking for a life and livelihood in regenerative agriculture? Need hands-on experience and training? Consider applying to the Kibera Coalition New Agrarian Apprenticeship Program. Quivera offers eight-month paid professional apprenticeships on farms and ranches in Colorado, Montana, and New Mexico. You'll live on ranch and learn from seasoned mentors about soil health, livestock management, business practices, and much, much more. You'll also become part of a growing community dedicated to healthy food and good land stewardship. Applications are now open through December 1st at quiveracoalition.org. Are
0: you passionate about sustainable agriculture and gardening? Then visit the Acres USA bookstore today. They have the best selection of books on sustainable agriculture and gardening from leading authors like Elliot Coleman, Mark Shepard, Andre Liu, and others. Get 20% off any Acres book purchase today with the discount code T20. Shop bookstore.acresusa.com and support sustainable agriculture. I'd love to hear more about the fencing, but I'm, I'm curious if first you could talk a little bit about, um, was there a difference in terms of the, uh, impact to the cropping, the positive impact to the cropping system, uh, between just using the cover crops as a green manure previously, and then having the livestock integrated there, um, what, what were you seeing?
1: Uh, You mean like in the following year?
0: Yeah, just in terms of like, was there a notable difference uh, in terms of, you know, your nitrogen or overall performance of the crops the subsequent year? Uh, Was it fairly comparable to when you had just, you know, had cover crops and then terminated them with a tractor and incorporated...
1: Um, the part that's really obviously different is it's pretty easy to do the numbers. It costs a lot more to do tillage than it does to swath. Um, everything else. No, I have no data or observation to suggest that it makes a significant difference that I'm not discouraged by, uh, because that is the way that arid environments work in my experience is that I think like if we're gonna analyze what the ecological and sort of agronomic production impacts of integrating grazing into the farming system are, then that's like a decades long process that we're uh, gonna need to look at. And if I looked at the following year and things went really well or went really poorly, and I tried to ascribe that to the practices of the grazing, I think that I would be doing myself a disservice in looking that closely at those practices because for instance we grazed for the first time in 2019 Um, that was a decent production year in terms of rainfall we did not do that well um, with harvest on the farm because we had a very wet harvest season and had a lot of loss of crop quality in the harvest season Um, 2020 was a drought year 2021 Was a drought year 2023 was the worst drought year that we've had in this area in decades so you know if i looked at 2022 and said man the grazing we've been doing for three years is not doing anything i think i would be analyzing my practices pretty unfairly Um, but it comes down i think like the importance of that question is about your motivation I guess like my motivation, I don't own the farm and I'm not the farm manager. Doug is the farm manager. I think it's probably his responsibility among us to look closely at the results that I produce with the grazing production and see if he thinks, cause his experience is longer. He's got a better notion of the landscape. See if he thinks there is a positive or negative effect. Um, my role in the grazing production is to understand, is this working for cattle? Can it be done on into the future? And then my personal goal is not necessarily to have a significant impact on increasing soil organic matter or not. It is more so to say, I think that this is a positive thing that we are doing. I don't think that I am damaging the environment. I think that these animals belong here in a sense. If I do it right, and also if I can scale this operation up significantly, then I have a livelihood here on the land. That's my primary motivation. Um, and maybe I, I might be giving myself too much credit, but I think I understand how to manage animals and how to farm in a way that's good for the soil. And I personally, I don't get very excited by soil sampling or, or, You know, I like look at something and I'm like, there's a lot of poop out there. And last time I was here, there wasn't a lot of poop out there. I think that's good. And then I move on, you know, and build more fence.
0: (laughs) So in in terms of numbers of animals, again, so you said you started with 30 cow-calf pairs on uh, a little over 100 acres and... You also mentioned that your the whole farming operation is on 12,000 acres. How are you making decisions about where cover crops go or are there cover crops on all 12,000 acres? Um, and if so, what are the implications in terms of like how much uh, custom grazing could scale uh, sort of in tandem with yeah. a, a crop operation like Valicas?
1: The first thing to answer, the so we farm 12,000 acres, but what is most common in our area, like people at this scale and for listeners who are not in the West or familiar with the West, like large scale operations, we tend to refer to the scale of things using sections. So a section is a square mile, 640 acres, and someone will say that there is a half a section or a quarter section, or this field is a whole section. Most of our neighbors and in this community accepting like uh, instances where a field is cut by a road or um, you know part of a section is not farmable because it's steep or it's eroding or something. we farm in sections and half sections. And so most of that management is somebody's going to do the same thing on 640 acres. Uh, so they're going to grow wheat or they're going to grow peas or they'll grow mustard or what's very common for us is chemical fallow. So people will spray the 640 acres with herbicide throughout the year, depending on weed growth, to keep it basically fallow, dead, nothing growing to preserve moisture. Uh, what we do is very different. So we raise some type of crop on every acre every year and so this is for the video enabled folks this is a half a section the long way is um, east to west or rather east to west and uh, these strips that you see are each different crops so we have the yellow here is yellow peas this is a barley and forage pea fallow Uh, the orange is wheat the brown is rye And all of those are crops in 2023.
0: Um, So just uh, hold on for one second. Hold it up again. So what, for those of you who are just listening, what Paul is showing us looks a little bit like a piano keyboard. Uh, So if that translates into what is a farm field, um, it looks like there are are keys, which are, I'm imagining sort of the um, strips in which you are producing a different crop in almost every strip. uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, so we have a five and a seven year rotation, meaning that say in this field that I just showed, there's a total of 21 strips and this uh, field is in the seven year rotation. So we will do three iterations of that rotation within that field, meaning that if, um, you know, two out of the seven years in that rotation are a cover crop, then there will be a total of six cover crop strips within the field. Depending on the size and the selection and location, some of our fields are a full section. This one is a half a section, so 320 acres. Um, In a full section, sometimes if the soil is less prone to erosion, it's a heavier soil, uh, we may farm in larger strips. Some, some fields we farm 400 foot wide strips. Most of the farm is in 240 foot wide strips. Uh, so that goes back to the, we are raising cover crop in every field on the farm every year. Um, it's just that the amount and the acreage and the specific location with it within the field varies. Um, The reason that we farm in strips, one, that's a pretty established cultural practice for the highly erodible lands that we have in Montana. Like 95% of the soil in Montana is considered highly erodible, which begs the question, should any of it be farmed? But that's for a different day. Um, And uh, our operation is organic. So we rely on tillage as a cultural practice for soil prep. Uh, to prep seed beds for um, good seed to soil contact and for weed management, which means that in any given time in the seeding season, we're going to have some percentage of our farm, which is bare soil in the period between when we've done preceding tillage and when crops emerge. Uh, The purpose of the strips is one to make it so that instead of having an entire section or half a section of ground, you know, that could be a mile in length, uh, be exposed soil. We have say four or five strips at a time. Uh, and then in between each of those strips is what we refer to as a conservation buffer. So if you have a 240 foot strip immediately next to it will be 20 feet of grass or other perennials. That's never tilled is only sometimes mown or grazed. And the purpose of that is to act as a windbreak. Uh, so if anybody is familiar, like at NRCS and USDA, they use a a wind erosion um, calculation of some kind, which balances the soil type that you have with the local geography and the um, dimensions of the field to calculate how high a risk your farming is for being prone to wind and water erosion, but our concern is mainly wind erosion. Um, And the number, I don't know how accurate that is. I'm sure that like everything at USDA and NRCS, it is somehow politically influenced. But um, the core principle is that the larger open space you have without interruptions to the wind, the greater the wind speed factor is and therefore the higher the potential for wind erosion because broad open spaces increase the potential for wind erosion. So to counteract that, people farm in strips. The pre, you know, pre roundup, pre herbicide conventional era of farming in Montana, everybody farmed in strips and you alternated brown fallow, basically tillage through the summer, with cash crop just one after the other. You just switched them up and that broke up the wind. We're doing the same thing, except that instead of only growing wheat, we now have you know, the knowledge and the technology possible to grow a much greater diversity of crops. And so we're going to grow something on every acre every year. And like I mentioned, the cover crops in our um, cropping rotation without grazing, we till in the summer. But That will be 240 feet, 12 acres on a half section, 240 feet of uh, fallow ground, which is surrounded by rye on this side, wheat on this side, yellow peas uh, immediately following, for instance. And so it's not going to be a great open expanse of tillage.
0: How much grazing could be happening on Velikas versus how much is happening? um, Sure. Sort of understanding the scope of how much cover crop is there and what would really make sense in terms of number of animals. And then I guess, you know, sort of the other question is, are there enough folks who need custom grazing to really meet the need of the farm if you were able to maximize grazing happening there?
1: Yeah, totally. I think that my experience, let me start at the beginning of that. So we've we manage about 12,500 acres not all of that is farm ground about 10,000 of it is is cultivatable ground and about a quarter to a third of that acreage every year is in what we refer to as a cover crop so 2 to 3,000 acres of grazing but uh, also there's plenty of opportunity for aftermath grazing meaning grazing Ground that's already been harvested in the late fall. So that's like a gleaning operation. And, you know, if we have a wet fall, we'll grow weeds in those fields after the fact. Um, so there's a ton of feed potential. It's really variable because it's all dependent on rain. And then those 2000 or so acres that we don't cultivate are primarily grass, perennial grass, um, either in the conservation buffers, in field borders, or large sections of fields that are not appropriate to farm. So there's a ton of perennial crop production as well. Um, If you were just trying to graze the perennials, it would be a nightmare and you would never want to do it because of how much fence you'd have to build to get so little feed. But I tend to integrate those grass sections with the annual crop grazing. Um, So, the potential is much greater than what we've achieved thus far. Um, And then also, as far as the market goes, I have not noticed any limitation to the custom grazing model based on demand for grazing. I mean, just like the hay market, it fluctuates a lot with the general rainfall. So like this year, I've actually had a little bit of a struggle getting more animals on the place when I realized I had a lot of feed late. Uh, But the people that I contracted with and, you know, made plans with in the fall of last year were more than happy to continue to send animals to me. So in a dry year, like the year before this, um, when uh, forage production was really low, I turned down a lot of people. And I think also the larger scale of herd in our area that you can accommodate, the more interest you can generate. Because there is there is a section that I'm not really in with. Like I don't know these people socially or professionally. You know, mostly I'm I associate with uh, family farm scale operations and organic farming not with large ranches but montana is a ranch state you know we have million acre ranches we have ranches in the tens of thousands of acres that run thousands of cattle and they fluctuate numbers up and down and there is a section of that marketplace within montana that we need to get to like the four to five hundred head herd range and then a whole slew of um potential clients sort of opens up to us that are not interested in the scale that I'm operating at right now, I think. Um, But that is a production level that's much closer linked to the commercial cow-calf market, which is always active and people are moving animals hundreds of miles, right? And not blinking at it because the shipping is a marginal cost compared to whether or not you can raise 400 steers or have to sell them.
0: Sure. So that that was another question is the animals that you are grazing, are they uh animals that are and and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but are they um gra- are they then grass finished someplace else? Are you doing finishing? Um and yeah, what type of a a market are they getting sold into?
1: Yeah, there's so there's been a few answers to that. I have grazed pears, so that's basically just maintenance-level grazing for uh, cow-calf production. Right now, I have one herd that's about uh, 64 head of mixed age and size steers and spay heifers. That's for an operation that retains steers and heifers, either to sell um, as... uh, a little bit heavier animals in the commercial market or for their own burgeoning beef operation but they are not a grass fed they are not attempting to market as grass fed it's just that you know for most of an animal's life being grass fed is more economically efficient but they'll probably finish those steers on some grain at their place before they sell them Uh, and then the other herd is with uh, an organic farmer and rancher which we do a lot of work with here in the same general area, about 50 miles south. They have a pretty well-established grass-fed, organic, um, direct-to-consumer market. So what I have now is replacement heifers from them being bred, and then a selection of steers, open heifers, spade animals that they intend to go into their um, meat market. Eventually, some of them are fat right now and could be slaughtered. Um and then the replacement heifers, uh, you know, whichever ones don't get bred will probably also go into that market. I have my own opinions about what makes the most sense to like utilize the service that we provide from a production model. Um, but you know, I haven't had a lot of traction yet in sort of making that known. Or I'm not a good marketer.
0: So what 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 is that? I would love to hear. What's your yeah, opinion? So we
1: we have a really short growing season, we have really limited water supply. When the when the temperatures go below freezing at night, I don't have a lot of options for watering animals. So there's a short window about four to five months that we can effectively graze animals and have good gains, but we're grazing annual cover crops. So the quality of forage that we can provide is significantly better than a lot of range land and pasture in our area. And so I think that it is not a good use of the resource to send mature cows to us who can do more with lower quality feed in a range and pasture scenario. Um, I think that the best use is to provide a higher plane of nutrition for replacement animals. If we're talking about like breeding stock that you want to, you know, catch up to the cows in your mother herd in terms of development and production and maintaining um, reproductive health. And then also to basically add pounds, but not finish, in a grass finishing scenario so like between the weaned calf and the stalker size um the reason being for that is that we just don't have the length of time and the timing of high quality forage available to match most of the production system for spring um, calved animals so if you send me yearlings i can put two or three hundred pounds on them Over the summer and send them back to you, but they're still not fat, you know, they need another six months or so. And I definitely don't want to suggest to anybody that they should graze animals with me in the winter because we got no trees. Uh, everything's flat and open. The wind blows constantly. And, uh, sometimes in the winter it's negative 40. So
2: this december why not join the acres usa community in covington kentucky for our 48th annual eco ag conference and trade show this exciting event brings together the leading voices in regenerative agriculture to offer practical advice based on personal experience and well-developed expertise each moment of programming is thoughtfully curated to provide practical Useful and measurable information that you can apply to your operation. Our workshops and plenary sessions are led by experienced producers like John Kempf, Will Harris, Gary Zimmer, Mark Shepard, Reginaldo Haslett marroquin Laura Cavanaugh, and many other innovative leaders working in the field. The week kicks off on Monday morning, December 4th, with three different incredible full day Eco Ag University intensive workshops to choose from, and our conference and trade show opens with the reception on the evening of tuesday december 5th followed on wednesday and thursday by the conference program of one to two hour sessions and amazing keynotes dig into subjects like soil health farm management livestock integration and more or hop between them all as you spend time absorbing new information making new connections and discoveries every day Join us for the main conference and trade show or decide to come early for the intensive EcoAg University. Either way, you can expect a fulfilling experience that will include exceptional learning from experienced growers and agronomists who have learned valuable lessons and are ready to share. For more information and to register, please go to our website, www.acresusa.com. See you in Covington.
0: Are you looking for the next bestseller for your favorite farmer or gardener? Visit the Acres USA bookstore to find the perfect gift for any loved one who likes getting their hands dirty. Find titles from great authors and farmers like Elliot Coleman, Mark Shepard, Andre Lu, and others. Get twenty percent off any Acres bookstore purchase with the discount code TT twenty. So um, I had a I've been holding a question. Um, So I sort of back to the beginning would love to hear like what your thoughts are on fencing specifics since you are, um, building, it sounds like exclusively, you know, very temporary fencing. And then also, um, I'm very curious about water and how your water infrastructure works, um, and how you would see scaling water sort of back to the previous question. If you were, uh, managing larger herd sizes, um, how does that uh, impact? Or is is your ability to be able to do that impacted um, by limitations of water?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so to go to the fencing, I'll describe, I think what I should preface this with first is that The pathway that I have chosen to develop the grazing enterprise with the land that we have is really significantly um, impacted by my almost total lack of capital or assets. So I do not have access to like assets to leverage for funds to build expensive infrastructure. Um, And my vision was to first get the tools that I could afford to allow us to put animals on the land and then build off of that into greater assets, hopefully, that I could leverage for capital from commercial lending institutions or FSA to then invest in larger infrastructure for the sake of scaling. So my vision is not to graze all 2,000 to 3,000 acres of cover crop entirely with temporary fence because the labor uh, demand is so significant for that. But right now, pretty much all of the fence perimeter that we have is temporary electric. It's single wire poly. I use plastic step in posts um, and a rubber mallet to hammer them into the dry ground. Uh, The most significant Um, piece of the fencing system is I have really big, powerful energizers, the the highest joule rating that you can get in a DC, a direct current powered energizer. And um, pretty much every day, I am either building fence or taking down old fence um, and preparing to build the next fence. And, uh, the general practice of what I do is, um, this is. Uh, going to be challenging for me to describe for those listening. But if you imagine that we're grazing um, a section or a half a section and we're grazing strips that go north to south, the minimum size of an area of grazing is going to be a half a mile long by 240 feet wide. And if I'm grazing a whole section, um, it'll be a full mile long so generally speaking i don't build less than two miles of fence at a time a mile to two miles of fence so it's it's very long fences lots of material it is not like uh what you might envision in a higher production area where you can put animals on to an acre or something for high impact like i'm grazing a minimum of 20 to 30 acres at a time so all of the fencing materials and tools that I use are tailored towards efficiency. So I have an electric reel um, that holds two miles of fence. It's on a trailer. Uh, with I put some barrels on this trailer that I built. It's battery-powered. The barrels hold the posts. I pull it along with a little John Deere gator that has a bed in it where I put more posts because you can't have enough posts. And what I do is I set a T post at one corner as my, where I pull the tension. And then I drive along and spool out the fence from the T post all the way to the next one. I tighten the piss out of it because it's really long and I need it to be tight. And then I just do that for two miles. And then I loop around the same system and I put in all the step in posts by hand. Um, And then I'll go and do the next one too. And the really critical things for me is to have a big energizer that has, uh, tons of joules to create a good charge in pretty dry ground. Um, I don't use the one advantage of, um, being in a place where people use barbed wire and steel T posts is I don't build ground systems. I just use a T post fence as a ground. There's no greater ground than a mile of T posts and barbed wire, (laughs) And then uh, I have a way oversized solar panel, like a 100 watt solar panel, which is way more than I need to run an energizer, and a nice uh, 12 volt battery with a little um, sort of like off grid solar system voltage regulator, which takes whatever amount of amperage needed from the um, solar panel to keep the battery charged and then stops feeding the battery when the battery is fully charged. I have that great big solar panel so that it will work in low light situations. Um, So I'm I'm pretty much never switching batteries. You know, I'm totally relying on the sun and that solar system setup to keep them charged. Um, And that's the fence materials. It's just T-posts. T-post clips, uh high quality wire and a good energizer, and then junky plastic step-ins, because all they're supposed to do is hold the wire directly up and I make everything really straight. I hope that makes sense. The um the long-term plan, right? That stuff is cheap and expensive, relatively speaking. Like I can pay for fence and wire and energizers with the income from the grazing. Um the larger investment is in water infrastructure and permanent fencing. Conceptually, if I can get permanent fencing around all of these fields that we farm, the kind that will integrate well with our farm equipment so I don't spend my whole uh, summer just fixing where somebody drove over the fence with a tractor. Um, the other significant Investment is in water, so we don't have um, a lot of surface water. Most of it is ponds that are fed by snowmelt in the spring. In drought conditions, they're not fed, so they don't exist. This year, we had a really good snowmelt. My grazing has been much more efficient because I have water in the field. I just fence the cattle to the water, and I don't have to haul water. But the first big you know, capital purchase that I made was to buy a semi tractor and a 8,000 gallon water tank so that I can haul water from the ponds that are more reliably full to places where we don't have surface water to water cattle. That doesn't increase the expense because they're not very far. I'm not hauling water many miles, just a couple, but it significantly increases the labor time in hauling water daily. So I got the biggest, if I'm going to haul water, I'm going to do it as little as possible. So I bought the biggest dang water hauling vessel I could find. Um,
0: and what is the water delivery system for the cows? If you are um, hauling water, or are you just putting it into pond infrastructure in those pastures or do you have tanks? I
1: have a, I have a fancy thing that I bought from a, a business in Wyoming, which is like a fabric lined uh, steel frame trailer with axles that drop out and it lays the frame on the ground after you move it. And then a heavy duty um, waterproof fabric in there, it's about a thousand gallon volume. Um, and that's a portable drinker. Basically the cows come to the drinker. I place it in a section of the field where I can park the water truck. And then, uh, I don't have pressurized delivery for water. So to make sure that I have adequate flow for a large herd of animals, I built my own, um, float valves out of two inch plumbing. So I use to go from the water tanker truck. I use two inch camlock flexible hose that goes to, um, just iron pipe, two inch size. And I used uh, hockey pucks as the float stop and a little lever arm, like most large floats, you can kind of copy anybody's theoretically patented design, but you know, they don't, not many people make a, a high flow volume, um, float valve for sale. Like the commercially, the biggest one I could find was like three quarter or two, an inch, maybe inch and a quarter. And, uh, I really feel a lot more secure with high volume delivery with not having, uh, with it all being gravity fed. Um, so yeah, I just built my own out of simple plumbing and if anybody wants, I'll just show them my junkie, uh, plumbing and welding job and they can improve it.
0: And, and in terms of the, the question of scaling and being able to accommodate more animals on the operation, does that present an issue or is that something that's fairly replicable and cost effective?
1: Uh, I think it, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not certain. So this year, thus far, I haven't had to haul any water. Last year, um, I was hauling every ounce of water that we used. Uh, the major limitation that I found is the pumps that I have to fill the tank tanker are pretty slow. You know, I'm using like a two inch trash pump with a two or three horsepower gas motor. And I've got a lot of feet of lift sometimes to get to the truck. And so it's like a six or seven hour task to fill 8,000 gallons and If I'm lucky, I have plenty I can do around that area with fencing work that I'd be doing anyways, that makes it efficient. But if I've got to go farm or drive a tractor and fill water at the same time, that kind of sucks. Um, So, I mean, I have a lot of concepts about how to improve all that stuff. The juggling that I do is one, what's it going to cost? Two, who can I convince to pay for it out of these various organizations that want to support? sustainable agriculture, you know, new and beginning farmers or whatever. And if I can't get them to pay for it, can I afford it? Uh, And then the other ball I'm juggling is, is it going to make a big difference? Where can I make the biggest difference right now? So I'm kind of caught. I don't really know if investment in um, wells is the appropriate place to go. It's really risky in our area to dig a well. We have very poor Groundwater supply, it is not guaranteed that you will find a productive well if you drill four, five, six hundred 600 feet down, and if you're going to find good water. Um, or is it a better investment to um, build permanent perimeter fencing and save myself a lot of time there and utilize that time that I would need to build perimeter fencing for water hauling? from places that already exist or finally is it best to invest in um more high volume water storage and then pipelines to transport it using gravity and following the lay of the land and eliminate the hauling by buying you know high density polyethylene pipe and laying that and i don't really know the answer and in some ways the not knowing the answer leads me to do nothing about that those because I don't want to take the wrong step. Uh, but that's got more to do with me being a procrastinator by nature than it does with good management.
0: Yeah. We're talking about some of the infrastructure needs. Is there anything else that was sort of surprising or unexpected in terms of infrastructure needs when you are working with these two systems that in, in most cases people are not integrating, uh, Yeah, what what are the sort of infrastructural pieces that were unexpected or present either opportunity or challenge uh, to the integration?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the first one, I don't know if this is infrastructural exactly, but um, farming and grazing are, like raising crops and taking care of livestock are very similar in that um, they take a lot of work, obviously, and like sometimes they demand all of your attention for an unspecified amount of time and you can't stop working at a thing until it's done because the consequences of like quitting in the middle are too significant, but they're very different in when that occurs. So like with the cows, The trouble I have with integrating is I don't just manage the cattle full time. I'm a pretty integral member of the cropping team in terms of my management and also as an equipment operator. So um, the cows don't need anything a lot of the time all the way up until somebody gets out. And then I don't know how long it's going to take me, what headaches there are going to be to get animals back in, or if I have a water crisis of some kind. And so there's a pretty significant management challenge in doing intensive grazing management like we do, and then trying for me to be a reliable employee to the farm, because at any given moment, I might have to just get out of whatever machine I'm operating, which if it's also about to rain and we're harvesting is a really significant issue (laughs) for the farm. Um, that's a, That makes sense to me, though. It's not that that challenge was unex, unexpected. I mean, there is a reason that people over time, like um, agricultural operations have specialized because it is a challenge, especially a labor challenge, to manage to do both of those things well. Or if they haven't specialized, then they've minimized the labor inputs to certain sections of those operations in the times where the other operation demands a lot. So for us, if I'm doing intensive grazing management right now, which is the harvest season, we don't really have an option for me to do less work on the cows in order to focus on the farming. Um, the unexpected, st- I don't say this, this is unexpected, but um, you know, equipment is hell on electric fence. It just doesn't stand a chance. So I have to build electric fence in a way a lot of times that accommodates what the farm equipment might need to do because they're always working side by side across the field. So there's a lot of things that in a pure ranching context would be much more logical or efficient um, that I just can't do because of the risk or the inconvenience that somebody might have in needing to cross my fence to – do a job on one side or the other.
0: I have a question related to that, which is, you know, maybe this is the broader question. My sense is that you think that there's a lot of benefit to integrating livestock, sort of what would incentivize somebody else who was doing organic grain production to bring livestock onto their operation and um, yeah. sort of related to that question, you know, are there other people who are trying it uh, in your neck of the woods.
1: Yeah, and they they do it differently. So like my friend, John Wicks, he's an organic farmer. He doesn't farm in strips, but he has a very different um, type of ground to us. He has a lot of hills and his fields are odd shaped and they're integrated with coolies and large grass areas, whereas we tend to farm a lot of big squares. Um, he's also got a little bit uh, less erosion prone soils. They're a little heavier where he's at. But what he does is like a field per year, he seeds to cover crop, So it's not in a cash crop rotation, but he doesn't seed cool season cover crops like we do. He seeds like warm season or full season cover crops, meaning he's got a mix of cool season and warm season annuals. And then he has neighbors that have cattle and he they already have fence because his operation used to be a ranch before they started to farm a lot of that ground. Um, so they've got fence and there's good water in that country. So he just, they use it as fall grazing. So in the fall, his neighbor puts cattle on the ground. They uh, graze as much of that cover crop as is desirable. And the benefits for his operation is there's manure and urine being deposited. Um, he is managing the residue that's growing by grazing it, and then using the rumen to turn it into something closer to the soil in the nutrient that his cash crops going to use. Um, and he doesn't have to do really any labor in addition to his farming system because of the relationships he has with neighbors. Um, I, our situation is a little different. I think if, you know, Doug and Anna were trying to integrate cattle, they personally don't have a lot of experience with livestock. They definitely don't have um, experience with the fence building and electric and intensive management. So they would probably want to do something similar, right? The simplest way to get some animals involved on the land, generate a little bit of income, not demand a lot of extra labor. The easiest incentive, I haven't really worked at it from this angle because I'm already the farmer and I've in this, you know, my specific thing, I've decided it's good. And now I need to go find people with animals and convince them that I am trustworthy to care for their animals and that my management techniques and, you know, kooky ideas are worth paying me money to execute. Um, But I think from a farmer perspective, their time and their resources and available investment is really marginal. So if I were going to go like a vision I have for myself in the future is that we are utilizing a hundred percent of the cover crop acres that we control and farm here, but I have relationships and access to more animals than we can sustain. So I can go to my neighbor and say, if you raise this cover crop here, I'll pay you X dollars per acre or for production um, as a lease. And then I'll bring cows on from somebody else. So I don't own the land and I don't own the animals at this point. I'm basically just like a a contractor of a sort. Um, and, uh, And I think what I have to do for those people one if they don't think that animals are going to be a benefit to their land in any way i don't think it's worth me spending a lot of time trying to convince them um if they've decided that and they like the idea of cover cropping and they want to utilize that i'm in a much easier position to convince them and then i have to sell them that they're gonna it's gonna be positive to their bottom line um i mean i it would be nice if more of us were in a position to make decisions with our farm operations that were based purely on our ecological ethic, but it has to be a positive impact for the bottom line for people to change what they do already.
0: But it, it, it sounds like it has been positive for bleakus and for you to be doing that grazing that it does create an additional income stream for the farm.
1: Yeah, to this point, so that would be. Uh, there's a small caveat to that. This is the first year in which the grazing income is being shared by the farm. So the previous years, you know, I had an arrangement with Degadana. They don't charge me rent, basically, and they're paying me to do my job. I have a salary to do my job on the farm, and then we just fit in the enterprise to the farming system and add it. And I'm not, I haven't necessarily paid them anything for access to the ground, the water, the equipment that I use on the farm. But my long-term goal is for it to be a legitimate um, enterprise, meaning that I have to transfer some of that grazing income to the farm, which provides access to the land and the equipment and the resources. Um, And that is a slowly evolving and very iterative process. Um, And it's not really clear what is a fair uh, dispersal of that income. The, The easiest, quickest thing thus far, I think it's been an economic plus for the farm because where we can swath graze and terminate cover crops we spend less swathing costs less than uh tillage both in immediate expenses and then also long-term risk to the soil um the other advantage is like our legume heavy cover crop mixes which are not exactly the best uh cattle forage or ruminant forage uh We've adapted to have a higher portion of high energy uh, annual grasses like barley or oats to improve the quality as a forage. Generally, we can seed a cover crop for a cheaper cost of seeds, you know, cost per acre in seed uh, if it's got a mix of uh, forage-based crops like oats or barley and not just chickling vetch or forage pea, which are our preferred uh, green manure legumes. So that's less cost in the spring, uh, and, and less cost in the summer for the termination. Uh, and then there's also the added benefit of depositing manure and urine directly on the soil. We don't import, um, nutrient on our farm. Just don't consider it to be cost effective in an organic system to except for some cow manure that we apply um, that we get from neighbors who have feedlots. Uh, And that is primarily for phosphorus. We have low phosphorus soils and um, and theoretically we can replace that operation, which, again, takes equipment and diesel and expense to make happen. And we can just do it by cows doing what they do naturally. Um, so it does, I don't think it's, a. don't think it's to this point adding expense to the farm operation, except for when I can't be doing something for the farm that I would otherwise be doing because I'm busy doing grazing work and I'm still being paid as a farm employee. Um, but I think that we're going to have to get to a much greater scale for it to be, you know, an effective and reliable income stream. The one economic advantage over the annual cropping, if you're doing the grazing in house, is the custom grazing uh, fee structure that I have. Is I get paid on a monthly basis for taking care of animals, and in crop farming, the growing season is typically the tightest time for cash flow, there's not a lot of inflow between seeding and harvest. Um, You don't really have anything to sell until you harvest something. And so a little bit of cash, a little bit relative to the scale of the farm economics, a little bit of cash flow in the summer season can be a big help.
0: That's great. Um, So sort of back to my question also about Are there other folks who are doing this? It sounds like there are not a lot of folks who are taking the sort of more intensive and enterprise-based approach that you are to integrating livestock into a cropping production system and that you're still learning a lot about how to make that work both logistically and financially for the farm, but that it holds a lot of promise.
1: I think so. I don't know of many people who are doing it on farm. I think the custom grazing thing is not a thing that I made up, but it's. I think it's more commonly practiced on large perennial grazing landscapes where people can, like somebody has control of a ranch and they've got 10,000 acres and in some years production means they can carry 500 cows and in some years they could carry 1,000. And doing custom grazing allows them to increase income in step with increased production. Um, And we're similar in that way, but I don't, the only other in our area or in central and North central and Northeast Montana, the integration of crop and grazing systems right now, it's generally happening in my experience. And I'm, I could be wrong just by ignorance, but where people already raise cattle and they farm just because that's the type of land they have where they have a lot of grazing land. And, uh, and then they're just kind of finding ways to make their cow herd, put their cow herd in a position to help out the farming operation or vice versa. So maybe they need a little bit of extra feed in the fall before they go on to feed and they've decided they're going to raise some cover crop. Cause it's, they're going to try it out for their farming operation. And then that extends their grazing season a little longer or in the alternative, um, you know, they have weeds or something or aftermath that they residue that they want to manage for their farming into the future. And the cows are a handy tool for doing that. Um, I think the other I just want to go back to, to that point of like, what is an incentive for somebody to custom graze animals with me Um, in the ranch setting? I think a place where the service that we provide on the farm really fits in well is if you have, uh, say a base of ranch land pasture or uh, grazing that you can is good quality feed in the fall and winter. Um, if you send us animals in the summertime, and you're basically a lot of stockpiling feed on your home operation, theoretically, if we work together for long enough, you know your ranch could get in a position to have a higher total carrying capacity on your home ranch. Because you're not needing the forage on the home ranch in the growing season. So you can grow more, graze it in the fall, do less hay feeding, lower your cost of production per cow over the whole year by utilizing forage on our farm. And to me, that makes a lot of sense also because I think that if, you know, part of my training and my learning is about like making or constructing agricultural production systems that mimic natural processes. So like we're on great big open grasslands of Montana. This was all before it was farmed rangeland and it would be grazed seasonally by migrating bison herds. And I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to assume that the bison did not choose to spend their time up here on the high dry plain in December In january but that it was a very pleasant place to be in june and july um and so that's kind of what we're doing right is we're bringing animals here in the season where it's appropriate for them to be here and if i have a ranch that has a much more hospitable and um, productive environment for winter care and grazing of cattle Together, we could theoretically have a much larger land base and increased capacity if I know that I don't have to keep cows here in the winter and they know they don't have to keep cows there in the summer. And that person, if they also have a farm, well, all of a sudden they don't have to do any animal care in the summertime or in the heavy farming season and save themselves labor cost in that instance.
0: So you're involved in yet a a third enterprise, which is a meat processing cooperative. And um, I know that for both grain production and meat production, that the marketplace is very challenging.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, And that the marketplace is also very dominated by... Uh, corporate monopolization that impacts prices in a way that make it really challenging to be to uh, have production systems that don't sort of follow conventional models. Um, so I feel like you as a custom grazer, Velika as a crop organic crop production farm uh, are really pushing the envelope in a lot of ways and that often you will potentially bump up against what the marketplace will support for a number of different reasons. And um, I'm curious if you'd like to talk about that at all or um, about your processing plant or how those two things actually work together. Because I'm assuming that opening a processing plant is part of uh, trying to create a full value chain for potentially the people that you are working with uh, to make it economically viable at lots of different stops uh, along that value chain
1: yeah totally wow, you have another hour that was you just you just prompted an hour-long discussion <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I know a <laughs> big can of worms but um
1: i yeah so we have the montana premium processing cooperative it's um located here in haver uh it is a producer-owned co-op it's a meat processing uh shop Um, owned by I think now we have over 50 owner members and that was built basically the lead on that project was the Montana Farmers Union utilizing some meat processing grant funding and their offices expertise and time to organize members of Montana Farmers Union to form this board so I was on the steering committee for that and then when the cooperative was formed. I was elected by the other steering committee members as the president of the board for the co-op. Um, my uh, election campaign was very brief. They said, Paul, we think that you should be the president of the co-op. And then, the, then they voted. I don't believe that I actually consented. Um, and I think that's a matter of youth. But um, And then Doug and Anna are also uh, owner members of the co-op as am I individually. So um, it's not a very big operation. You know, I think you know basically what we did with that co-op was we took advantage of the grant funding available and then um, monies from Montana Farmers Union and National Farmers Union and the uh, Farmers Union Enterprise States, which I won't go into detail, but basically a uh, bunch of sugar daddies and then some members money to buy an existing facility, a Schwan's, uh food distribution facility in Haver that was out of use but had a big freezer space, buy a mobile processing unit from Mike Calicrate out of uh, Colorado Springs, and then build a new structure around that to house the processing floor. And uh, eventually that will develop into an entirely brick-and-mortar floor, and somewhere we will sell or donate or just move to a new location, the mobile processing unit and use that as the nexus of building another cooperative. But the idea is to uh, contribute to the development of a more regionalized and less centralized food processing system for all the reasons that you mentioned about the, um, you know, giving uh, producers access to meat processing that is local, that is USDA, that facilitates retail sale, that allows them to capture more of the value of the product they raise than they currently do in conventional systems at the farm gate. Um, My personal involvement really was just because I believe in that stuff and I live close by. And um, I'm very active with the Farmers Union. I didn't really get involved with the concept that this was going to be of a benefit to our business necessarily. And I don't know that it will be. I have some theories that in shorter term finishing animals, like a sheep operation, we could be a really great place to send animals to finish on grass. And then they're 30 minutes away from the processor here. Uh, But that's, you know, as I said, lot of speculation. Um, yeah, I was, I was involved more so for other, to be a part of something that would be a benefit to the community at large and other producers like, um, the ones we work with who have a meat marketing program. I personally, I have worked, uh, on ranches that do direct to consumer sales. I do not find that work satisfying, uh, sales marketing and the Production of beef is not my bag, and I'd much rather be uh, a link in the forage chain somewhere in the middle, not on the end. Um, but Valicas Farms also—we just are very—we uh, find cooperatives, uh, the cooperative ethic, and the um, you know cooperative movement very appealing. Like you say, there's so much money wealth and power in concentrated food systems that uh, manipulates the markets we work in to make it as hard as possible for farmers to be profitable or for there to be many farmers and ranchers and as easy as possible for uh, the owners of those corporate monopolies to extract profits both from farmers and consumers. And I think that There's two avenues to dismantling that system. The one is to be politically and socially active in um, enforcing the laws that we have on the books to uh, keep monopolization from dominating uh, markets at large, whether it's the food market or consumer products or anything like that in our country. And the other is to simultaneously, to that political effort, uh, build – the alternative. So that one, there are examples for other people to use to build their own alternative locally so that I don't have to go to every state and organize to build these alternatives, but that people within the community who understand the needs uh, and the consumer base better can build it for themselves. Um, But also uh, because it's not a lot... There's not a lot of benefit to people in a community to dismantle a system that we rely on, despite it being not to our advantage or um, specifically oppressing us uh, if we don't at the same time build the thing that will better serve our needs. Um, Boy, but I could really go on more about the. (laughs) (laughs) me <laughs> go on. Uh My voice started to get a little tired just thinking about all the things that we could say about it. Um, but, oh, I said something about the scale. So it'll do about 3,000 head a year, right? So like in comparison to plants that are the foundation of our food system right now that do thousands of head per day, um, it's a small drop in the bucket. But what we need is like, you know, 10, 20, 50,000 of those facilities around the country that bring the source of the food and the production of the food much closer to the consumer than the centralized system that we have.
0: That's great. And yeah, maybe we'll, we'll pick up the thread of the the value chains another day, but I appreciate yeah. you sharing a little bit about it because I, I do think that it is relevant. Um,
1: yeah. And I think to talk about the way that uh, monopolization and concentration, affects farming and crop production is even more, um, complicated and convoluted and difficult to say, because crop production is so input dependent in so many ways. And so crop farmers are, they deal with concentration at the, um, at the input level, as well as the marketing level in a way that's really puts the squeeze on people.
0: Well, it sounds like Velikas is trying to think through and get creative about how to navigate some of the inputs as well. And yeah, Yeah, your livestock integration is one of those ways in which uh, you all are reducing need for external inputs.
1: Yeah, I guess I shouldn't assume that the listeners understand the organic methodology or ethic, but the basic idea of our farm is to eliminate off-farm inputs. So we don't purchase fertilizer. We don't purchase chemical. Um, Those are some of the most significant expenses for most non-organic operations. Um, Our biggest input is seed. We try to grow as much of our own seed as we can, um, and then diesel and labor, after that are our most significant expenses. Um but the idea is to uh you know the organic marketplace is supposed to provide a premium for this high quality product that is grown without those inputs and the you know potential negative health effects for the environment and the human body. Um, provide a premium and that then helps offset the fact that organic production generally yields significantly less than non-organic production which relies on those inputs so that's also part of why we integrate grazing into the cropping system is because it fits the organic ethic quite well right that we're trying not only to grow food but also our system needs to be improving the health of the land to be a truly certified organic production system
0: That's great. So um, I've been trying to uh, tie up these interviews with a sort of big philosophical question for my guests, which is, what is the ecological role of the farmer? And I'm curious when I ask you that question, what comes to mind?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the obvious and initial answer is like, if you're a farmer, I believe that you have a responsibility to Take care of the land that's under your control, you know, in the best way that you can to read what the landscape wants to give you and in your farming practices to ask for it to return to you what it's capable of and not more than it can. So to not abuse or uh, treat the land in an extractive frame of mind. I think that the... I think that modern life and relationship to nature, and I think I'm particularly sensitive to this because I didn't grow up in agriculture, um, it really separates the human experience from the natural world. I think that's part of why um, why we all have so much tension and fear around the climate crisis too is because so much of the human experience has been uh, developed, designed, engineered to separate us from the natural environment. I I believe that part of uh, a farmer and a rancher's, you know, ecological responsibility is to do some work to bring other people closer to the natural world, not simply to um, to command and control your own small piece of the um, larger ecology and make sure it's good. At least it's better than everybody else's. I think that's kind of a waste of time and energy, right? We need to like work cooperatively to find ways to improve our um, management. Um, that's part of my incentive to be involved with the co-op, the meat processing co-op too, right? Is to like put some money and time and investment into something that's accessible for more producers in my community so that they have an avenue to then do direct to consumer marketing. And maybe that added value is an avenue towards improving the practices they can do on their farmer ranch to increase. Uh, soil health or wildlife habitat or uh, insect populations you know because the reason I think a lot of the reason that farming as it is now is so susceptible to um, criticism and um, and judgment from the rest of our society about how it impacts the environment is because it's all profit and efficiency driven. Um, You know, the economic realities of growing uh, food for people are such that uh, there's not a lot of room to try new things or to radically change your operation to improve how it impacts the environment around you, because it doesn't take very long for you to destroy the business or the family legacy that you have responsibility towards by doing something risky and trying to do something better for the planet. So that's a problem, right? To be in an environment where it is too risky to change your practices to improve the health of the land that you manage. The last thing is
0: just where can other producers learn more about your work? And are there any resources or recommended readings that you'd like to share for folks who are interested in this topic?
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm pretty bad about that. I haven't read a book probably since I graduated college about a decade ago. Um, I listened to a lot of books, but I spend so much time thinking about farming and ranching because I do it all the time that I'm not really that well versed in the world of like you know the great thinkers of our um, small subset of the uh, population, but um, if people want to know more about what we do, I think you should just give them my cell phone number, um, and they should call me or text me, and we can talk about stuff because uh, I'm I like thinking about the problem or challenge of how to recreate animal integration in new places, new environments. And also my personal experience is really environmentally limited to the arid West. And so it's a great, um, it's a great deal of fun for me to communicate with other producers and learn about what are the specific challenge. Like, I don't know what it's like to be in a place where your biggest challenge is that it's too wet. I don't have any idea, but I think you can apply some of the same principles of land management to solve solutions in that instance as you can places where it's too dry. Um, and then we have a website for the farm, com. I'm presuming that uh, you will provide the spelling of Valicus, so I don't need to spell it out here. And then uh, if you would like to see uh, how handsome I am, then you can look on our, um, Instagram. Uh, I don't know if it'll give you much information about what we do besides that, but you know, we have lots of pretty pictures. Um, and then also you can provide my email to people, but I think the best thing is, uh, to, uh, call me directly and also become a member of the National Farmers Union.
0: That that's great. Those I I love both of those suggestions. Um, is your email on the Velikas Farms website?
1: Yeah, it should be under the the section about um about the employees and staff on the farm. I believe my contact info is there. But if it's not, it's Paul, P-A-U-L at Velikasfarms.com.
0: That's great. Um Thanks for sharing that. I think also you've got information on Instagram, both under Velika's Farms and uh, PN Grazing.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call that informational. It's a little bit more poetic, the last one, but yeah.
0: But it's another it's another way to find you.
1: Yeah, I can be found. <laughs> I cannot escape.
0: Great. Um Anything else you would like to share with this audience before we wrap up the interview?
1: Mm, Not that I can think of. I feel pretty well shared at this point.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, um, Paul, thank you for uh, taking so much time to talk with me today about what you do. And um, I hope a few people do call you up on the phone. Yeah, that
1: would be great. I really mean it. I mean, perhaps I will come to regret that, but that's that's (laughs) just That just means that my words have had some positive impact. So that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, no, that that would be great. Okay. Well, thank you, Sarah.
1: I appreciate you thinking of me to interview. And also, I love having conversation with you. We should have a podcast where I interview you, though. I feel like your uh, experience, knowledge, and uh, deep wisdom are sort of underutilized as the interviewer in this (laughs) circumstance.
0: I, I don't know I, I I appreciate talking to people who have um, a lot of hands-on experience uh, on the land and I've got some of that, but uh, it's pretty fun to talk to somebody who spends all day every day thinking about it um, and who I in my humble opinion has really um, taken a lot of risk both personally and uh, professionally and figured out you know ways to uh, try something that is very unique um, to create some systems change at a scale of production that is is large because I think that that's a place where uh, it's happening less. I think that there's a lot of innovation happening at small scale production. And um, what you and Doug and Anna are up to, I think, presents some really interesting uh, approaches to how uh, an agro, agroecological approach can happen at scale.
1: I do have, now that you said that, I have one more thing that I want to mention. So my mentors, Julie and George in Colorado, who are very, uh, wise and experienced practitioners of holistic management. Um, they taught me about this concept of the unfair advantage, Which I like to think of as like, think of a thing in your particular environment or your circumstance that would be really easy to look at as like just unfair and an obstacle to you doing what you want to do. And then play with that and turn it around and look at it from all different angles until you can understand that it actually provides an advantage to you that others don't have. So like an easy example of that is like the swath grazing It doesn't rain here very much in the summer. And for a lot of reasons, it's pretty obvious that that's a disadvantage, right? Growing feed and crops, rain is good. But it also allows me to cut hay and just leave it on the ground and for it to become or to maintain quality as a forage for months on end. So I can do this grazing practice that I want to do. Um, and I bring that up because you said that I take a lot of, I have taken a lot of risks personally and professionally to execute these visions or goals at a large scale. And I have begun to think about the, um, instance of the climate crisis and facing it as an agricultural producer, as one of those unfair advantages, because what reason is there to do otherwise than take risks we are at a such a critical juncture in our relationship to the planet and the environment that we can't afford to be conservative in our actions and i don't really i would rather fail spectacularly than uh watch things continue to not work and wish they were better
0: that's great i think that that's a great note to end on um Paul, thank you so much again for taking time with me today to chat. And um, again, you can learn more about Paul's work at VelikasFarms.com. And uh, we look forward to having you all on next time. I'd like to thank Paul Neubauer again for joining us today. You can learn more about Paul and his work at VelikasFarms.com and on Instagram at p underscore n custom grazing. Thank you for listening to Tractor Time, a podcast production of Acres USA. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Find other Acres USA media and learn about Acres events at acresusa.com. We'd like to thank Acres USA staff for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Brad Parsons of Train Sound Studio. And we're grateful to our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences.